once a film is out there, it's not like, oh, our work is done. We're like constantly trying to get more attention on even movies that are 10, 12 years old. I mean, it never stops. Hey, Jenny. Hey, Sky. So, who do we have on this week? So, this week we're doing something a little different. Our guest is not a filmmaker. Uh, He's not a video journalist. But he does have a lot of information that I think would be really useful to anyone making a film or really anyone interested in film. His name is Dan Berger. Uh, He's the president of Oscilloscope, which is an indie film distributor. In this podcast, we talk a lot about the process of making a film. But once it's done, what do you actually do with it? How does it get into theaters? How does it get on iTunes? You know, there's a complicated process, and um, it was fascinating to hear about. That's awesome and so timely because, you know, I'm having these conversations with a lot of my friends and in the video consortium at large and in the film community at large, there is this big cohort of short doc makers who are transitioning into making longer stuff, you know, mm-hmm. feature documentaries, docu-series. And there are so many online outlets and whatnot that you can put a short doc on. But when you get into feature film distribution, feature documentary distribution, it's a whole other ball game. Yeah, you can't just put it on the internet. No, no, you can't. And there are gatekeepers and there are, you know, there's the whole film festival circuit. And so, you know, there has been this conversation of, is it festivals first? Is it distributors first? Like, do you sell your film or do you get a lot of accolades first? Yeah, and we get into all of that. And we even go as basic as like, do you need a distributor in the first place? Can you self-distribute? Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. I have to say, like, Dan works for a film distribution company. So he obviously is coming from a perspective. But that said, I think it's he, he was pretty unbiased. Mm-hmm. And also, what do you do with the short film? How can you distribute that past the Internet? How does that see the mm-hmm. world? Well, I can't wait to hear it. So let us jump right in. Let's jump in. Here we go. This is Rough Cut. This is Rough Cut with Dan Berger. Can you kind of walk us through what the advantages are of having a distributor as opposed to doing it yourself? Sure. I mean, I'll, I guess I should caveat this whole conversation at the beginning by just kind of saying that, you know, It's going to vary from person to person, from film to film, from company to company. I do think that if you've ever talked to a filmmaker who has gone through some kind of a self-distribution process, um, the first thing that they'll say to you is that they didn't realize how much work it was when they undertook that. And one of the benefits of working with a distributor is having someone or a team of people to do that work and then them also approaching it with a certain level of experience that there are there are so many nuances it's not dissimilar to making a film there are so many things that you don't think about you don't know they need to be done and then only going through the process as things crop up you know one at a time often because you didn't do something that you were supposed to do and there's a problem as these things develop it becomes more and more clear how cumbersome and complicated the process is mm-hmm. in the same way that, you know, making, producing a film, producing a documentary, coming at that, having never done it before, 
and working with people who haven't necessarily done it before. It's like, what does that process look like? Yeah. Imagine putting a budget together, like out of a vacuum. Mm -hmm. How many things are gonna be in there that you didn't anticipate being in there? And distribution is a really nebulous thing for a lot of people. So getting into that without the experience can be just a lot and a lot more complicated than people anticipate. Now, there are certainly people who do it successfully, self-distribute successfully, and there are absolutely ways to do it. But oftentimes working with people who've just been through the experience before is, is half the work. What kind of specific roadblocks or issues were people running into who were self-distributing who had never done it before? It becomes the aggregate of a lot of things. And it's small things that, you know, like if you, if you make a film, how do you get that movie on IMDb? How do you get the, the poster on IMDb? How do, you, how do you go through these tiny little steps? Because as a film goer, how do you find out what's playing somewhere? You, maybe you Google it, you type it into like Fandango or something. Those things don't just happen. Like somebody has to put that stuff out there. And if you undertook self-distributing your own film, how would you go about that? Like you wouldn't have any idea where to begin to ensure that this film is findable on a very, very basic level. And that kind of permeates every step of the process, you know, and, it, and even as a company who does this all the time, we run into issues where it's like, you know, Google's not like uh, showing this right, displaying this right, or, you know, Rotten Tomatoes has the wrong poster or something like that. Like these things happen all the time, but we know how to fix them. We know how to initiate them in the first place. And that stuff it can be done by anyone. It's just like, it's a lot and it's if you haven't done it before, it's like, where do you begin? Yeah, and I, th I think probably a certain element of it is like anticipating those problems too. Yeah, for sure. And that's just like on the marketing side of things. And it's like dealing with theaters and it's like, you know, assuming, let's say you can get the film booked at IFC Center or something and you're scheduled to open. The number of steps that are involved in, you know, just making sure that the theater is happy with what's going on, whether it's like, the trailer or the poster or getting them certain types of material like, it's just it's a lot mm -hmm. it's a lot of little things that mm -hmm. aggregate to what can be a real headache mm -hmm. and this isn't like a cautionary tale where you know i'm saying like nobody should self-distribute something i think knowing what you're getting into at the outset is a really important part of the process and if you do and you feel confident and maybe you can surround yourself with people who maybe it's not a distribution company but it's people who have had some level of experience doing this before whether it's hiring a theatrical booker who can then be helpful in other areas or a publicist that really knows how to kind of navigate certain elements um, there are certainly successful ways of doing it yeah yeah I mean you, th you think oh the hard part is making the film and then I just distribute it but it sounds a lot more complicated and also like when when does a distributor i mean one of when sky and i were talking about this episode one of our biggest questions because she's in the middle of making a film and is kind of confused about like when a distributor even comes into the mix is it before you go in the festival circuit is it during is it after how does it play into that yeah it can be i mean it can be any one of those uh i would say that we probably end up getting about 80% of our films off of the festival circuit, meaning that they've already premiered somewhere. The reason why festivals are a good source of films for us is because effectively someone has already curated that 
set of films. It's like you go to Sundance and there's 150 titles or whatever the number is playing at the festival out of however many submissions they got, 10,000, let's say. They already vetted that. You know, if, if people were just sending us everything, that would be completely unwieldy. We couldn't possibly look at all that stuff. We don't have the bandwidth or the capacity to do it. And by using these third-party filters, and then we'll go in and we'll refilter because we'll go to the festival, we'll look and we'll see what what actually appeals to us and what seems doable. And, and then from the 150 films in the festival, maybe we're interested in 10 of them. And so that step of the process is one of the reasons why we tend to get involved later on. Now, there are other sources of people getting stuff to us, um, you know, whether it's through a sales agent or through uh, just like a, a contact, maybe it's a producer who we've worked with. That stuff does happen. And we not infrequently acquire films directly from producers where there is no agent involved or anything. But a lot of it ends up being timing and luck and just, you know, it's like we get tons of unsolicited pitches. And, you know, if somebody sends an email into our general mailbox, like it gets looked at. But do any of those unsolicited emails turn into? Yeah, it's happened before, but it's totally you can't plan for that. We actually we just produced a film. We got involved in this film early, actually based on just an unsolicited email that came into the info at email box. What was it, what was it about that email? It, well, there were a number of elements to it. So first of all, it wasn't asking for anything. It was just a, it was a very funny email that the filmmaker sent it uh, in the lead up to Sundance last year. And can uh, you say what this film was? Yeah, so he had a short film at Sundance that year. Um, It was a short film called Painting with Joan. In the lead up to the festival, he or his producer actually sent an email to us that was basically like, you should just watch this movie. And it had a PS, and the PS was that the director was randomly, we released a a film called Shut Up and Play the Hits, a, a concert film. It was LCD Sound System's final concert at Madison Square Garden. And one of the shots in that documentary in the concert film is a crowd shot. And the director of this short was in that shot. And just coincidentally, randomly, when we uploaded the trailer to YouTube and it auto-picked a thumbnail, he is the thumbnail for the trailer on YouTube and everywhere else. It's just like that frame is his face. Mm -hmm. And... You know, it's LCD thing was viewed millions and millions of times. And uh, anyway, it was just this kind of funny PS that got thrown in there. And so it came into InfoAd. It was forwarded to our acquisitions guy. He read it. He just thought that the short sounded funny, and it was four minutes long. So he watched it and really liked it. And then it just sort of spawned uh, a conversation internally. You know, a, a bunch of us watched it. The short is really, really funny. It's really well done. And then we got in touch with them and, and said, you know, hey, we'd, we'd love to figure out a way to work together in some capacity. And they had been harboring this idea of taking this short and a previous short that they had made and developing those into a feature. And so we helped them to do that. I wouldn't attribute it to anything other than like timing and luck. They sent the email mm. a week or so before Sundance. It got looked at five weeks later. You know, we were like 
in the process of going to Sundance and preparing and that's and everything's super busy and then and it was you didn't, like you just didn't see it at Sundance you missed it we didn't see the short at Sundance no okay. and then you know it was a number of weeks later where somebody was just like cleaning out their inbox and came across it and there was just something in the subject line or you know I something guess. caught their eye I don't remember what the yeah something like that mm-hmm. so we ended up basically working with them to develop the feature, which actually incorporates the short right into it, that mm-hmm. the footage that was shot for the short um, is integrated into the film. And we worked with them to basically put the film online. We've we've worked on a couple of shorts over the past few years, and each one of them is a little bit different. There's not really a formula for how you distribute a short film. A couple of them we've attached to the head of features that we've released, so they've, gone act, they've actually gone out theatrically, um, you know, we can get them up in various places, like whether it's iTunes or, or or free places like, you know, Vimeo or we've put stuff on, you know, I mean, anybody can upload anything to YouTube, but we've put stuff on YouTube in like via channels that have massive outreach and stuff like that. So each one's a little bit different. But for them, when they made this short, I, I have no idea what their intention was for it. You know, it was something to hopefully get to launch uh, a feature out of. And I don't know how they were necessarily going to go about doing that. But I guess it's sending a bunch of unsolicited emails to yeah, <laughs> to people and see what happens. Yeah, it is. It's this weird space for, for short films, short documentaries and um, fiction films where like where do they where where is the right home for them? And there's so much amazing content out there and it shouldn't be just Vimeo staff picks. It should be, I think it should be on streaming platforms and yeah. there's definitely a place for it, but it's sort of like, yeah, there's never really been a good apparatus for yeah. getting short films out there. We're a film distributor and I still don't really know what you do with that stuff. I mean, we, so every time we've ever got involved in a short film, that conversation with the filmmaker has basically been, we don't really know what the fuck we're going to do with this and you don't really know what you're going to do with it. So if you want, we can just try to figure it out together. And that's kind of the nature of the conversation. And there's not usually a monetary component. It's like, we know, we don't expect that we're going to make any money on this. So we don't want you to expect that. We don't want you to be disappointed if you don't like, we'll try to figure out how to get it in front of the widest possible audience. And that's kind of all we can do. Sometimes you do make money on them, and sometimes you don't. We did work on a short uh, a few years ago called Pickle, a documentary short that's really charming, really funny, and that actually got out there quite a bit. Um, Through what kind of channels? So we attached it to the head of a feature. It went out theatrically to, I don't know, not a lot, maybe like 25, 30 theaters, something like that around the country. I mean, we did a lot with it. We sold it to Filmstruck when that was still a thing. It's on iTunes. We actually sold it we executed a deal where it was it was on some airplanes there was a slightly short edited version that that went up on new york times op docs i mean i think this thing's probably been seen by millions and millions of people it's on canopy now do you think you were able to distribute it more widely because it's such a good piece of work absolutely i mean the film definitely that sounds like a stupid question but no no no. it's you know that's a universal too it's like the films are often the biggest asset that you have to getting a film mm-hmm. seen. It's one of the reasons why we very, very frequently work on films that would be classified as uncommercial, I think, just general, according to conventional wisdom. And that's actually very frequently really appealing to us because when something is the right kind of uncommercial, when it's 
different enough or new enough that becomes the asset. So when you have a movie like Madeline's Madeline or The Fits or Embrace of the Serpent, these movies that a lot of our competitors probably either wrote off or just didn't kind of couldn't wrap their head around like what you do with it. Like, that stuff is very very appealing to us and those movies in part work because when people watch them they're just like I've not I haven't seen anything like that before. There's an experience there. I think that can be a really important part of it and those are all films that are basically the film is the thing that's making it get out there. You mm-hmm. know, we can only do so much and that's the case with every film with every distributor. It's like there's there's a fickleness to this stuff and unless you're Sony Classics and you're releasing like the same movie for the same audience to Sony Classics know how to get a bunch of 60 to 80 year old people into a, an independent theater to see whatever some du- Judy Dench movie or Maggie Smith movie yeah sure that is as formulaic as this stuff gets and then there's a ceiling on that and once you start getting into really anything else it just becomes there's a, there's an unknown quality to it hmm yeah you have to have a good product so when you're sitting down for a movie at Sundance or another festival, what are those like magical qualities that you're looking for? We have to be either moved or entertained or just like taken in by that film in some way. We approach things from the perspective of do we like it? If yes, what can we do with it? As opposed to a lot of a lot of companies that go out there and they're like, is this commercial? If yes, do we like it enough to release it? I, I think it's the intention going in, which is really just like wanting to respond to a film. And and sometimes there are films that you like, but they're not special enough or they're not different enough or they're not unique enough. Um, if you ask me how to how you define an oscilloscope movie, like I don't I don't even know how to do that. For us it's really just, you know, what's ultimately what's moving us. And then there also has to be a feeling that we can benefit the film that we can get it out there there have been plenty of movies that we see we like and then our response to the filmmaker is just like we can't be helpful to you could you give me an example of a circumstance you don't have to name a filmmaker or film but like what kind of qualities would a film have to have where you can't be helpful to it you know it happens it happens most frequently with us happens a lot with genre films just as individuals we tend to like like them a well done horror movie is a lot of fucking fun and I think we all think that here. But there, there's a very specific way to release a genre film, and there's companies that do it well. And we don't really have that experience and that history. And so oftentimes it's like, are you better served with us doing it or Magnolia doing it? And probably the answer is Magnolia because they're a good distributor and they know what they're doing. And so when we have conversations like that, it's not infrequent that we'll just say that you know mm. it's like we really like this movie It'd be cool to work on this movie but where? Yeah, yeah yeah maybe it's not the right fit yeah is there a quality i mean you mentioned that you're looking for a film to evoke emotion does that apply to nonfiction films as well or is there something specifically different you're looking for in a nonfiction film yeah no i mean i think that same attitude apply it might be it might apply slightly differently there's a number of nonfiction films for example that we've released because 
we felt very strongly about what the film said, what they were about, and less about can we find an audience for this movie or uh, I think like a good example of this is a movie called After Tiller that we released. It's a documentary about the only four remaining doctors who were performing um, late-term abortions. No one, and I don't think the filmmakers, I don't think anyone involved in this movie thought like, oh, we're going to find a a huge audience for this movie and it's going to do really well. It's a very, very difficult film, but it's also a very important film. And so for us, that was a movie that we felt really we wanted to throw our weight behind it and support it and whatever we could get out of that great but that's not the driving factor here i think it happens a lot with docs that deal with social issues that we believe in it it can be difficult to sort of keep working on movies that commercially that like you know we are at the end of the day we do have to keep the lights on and we need these movies to make at least enough money to do that and if something is really difficult, like you can only you can only do that so frequently. But we do take films like that on often, and I've definitely found myself getting softer over the last couple of years, like being more and more drawn to movies that have like a positive message or like say something that seems important or that needs to be said right now or like highlights something that is like underrepresented in some capacity. So. Was that a factor in your decision and taking on on her shoulders? Uh, yeah, I mean that movie. That movie also happens to be an incredibly well made movie. Yeah, we and, had Alexandria on the podcast. Oh, cool. And yeah. yeah, it's it's but it's kind of falls into that. When I saw that, I was like, I don't really know who this film is for, but it's amazing. Right. Yeah, and I think we probably thought similarly, and I think she probably thought. I don't know what she articulated <laughs> to you, but. You know, I think everyone kind of went into that eyes wide open, like this is a challenge. This is a commercial challenge, but I think it's a movie that deals with something that's super important and it does it incredibly well. It does it gracefully and artfully and and it's actually quite different. Most people you read a you read a traditional synopsis of the movie and you have no concept for how it actually is dealt with or what it's saying. I think it's an incredibly complex movie and it, it turns what you expect it to be on its ear and it becomes about something entirely different. And the fact that it points a finger at, it points a finger at a lot of people who, who are trying to do good. You know, I think we're in a place right now where it's like pointing a finger at do-gooders is not something that a lot of people want to do. And so that is definitely a movie that, you know, we had very candid conversations with, with Alexandria and the producers at the outset that was kind of like, you know, this is a movie that will struggle to find a wide audience and we'll do what we can and we'll put as much behind it as we can but we want everybody's expectations to be set going going into it is it struggling to find a wide audience because it's complex or is it because it's about a woman or is it because it's about a marginalized community that not a lot of people know about like what all of the above (laughs) yeah i mean i think it's there's there's been so much conversation this year especially about how we're sort of documentaries are thriving and we're in a golden age of documentaries and there's never been a better time for documentaries and that's such bullshit that's absolute bullshit you think so yes people are saying that because there are a very small number of documentaries this year that have done a lot of business and if you look at the the through line of all of those docs there is a very 
specific reason why they're working. It's because they all make you feel good about yourself. None of those docs are these sort of what we think of as these like traditional, like heavy films. Those movies are still not working. No one's going to see those either. And just because a movie like Free Solo, which is incredible cinematography scaling the side of a mountain like that is not an appropriate comp to 99.9 percent of other documentaries and a movie like won't you be my neighbor and this is not a dig at these movies for what it's worth like they're great films and Mm -hmm. they should work but to say that because those this small handful of movies that both do something differently and are also dealing with subjects that every single one of these films had incredibly large built-in audiences before they even existed with RBG, with Won't You Be My Neighbor, with Free Solo. Like these things are they're coming out of nowhere. And so the idea that it's there's no better time for docs is a silly notion. There's no better time for the documentary about this man who is world renowned and saw tens if not hundreds of millions of people through their formative years like of course that movie is gonna work Mm -hmm. that's insane to think it wouldn't and so i think that films that are more complex that are more thought-provoking those are still not just thriving and so i think that why a movie like On Her Shoulders is difficult is it's a combination of all of these things. I don't think it's a better time for docs. And so it's not like it it was like starting from a better place. I think it was starting from the same place as we've kind of always been. And it is a movie that it's not just thought provoking, but it, 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 it's making you experience things that might be unpleasant. You know, I don't think anybody sat there and watched won't you be my neighbor and felt really bad <laughs> at any moment yeah, at no, all. No. And I like that movie a lot, but it's, it's a very, very different type of film. Mm-hmm. And so I st- still think that these, these movies that like take you through a range of emotions that, that sometimes are really are emotions that we don't want to have. Those do still struggle. It's still like a challenge to get people to want to, voluntarily expose themselves to that yeah yeah definitely it's interesting to compare these two films like free solo which is an amazing film but a simple story about a man free solo climbing el capitan and it's visual and it's exciting and it's so easy to just recommend to someone and then comparing it to a film like on her shoulders which you know we've just sat here and talked about for a while and i think a listener who has not seen the film still wouldn't be like completely sure what it's about because you can't really describe what it's about. You just have to see it yeah. or you can try, but it doesn't really capture all the nuances of the film. Right. Um, And even as somebody who loved the film, like how do you, if, if you were recommending a film to a friend and your options were on her shoulders or free solo, it's, you don't want to make people feel, you know, like I can recommend maybe you recommend it with a caveat, you know, it's like, this is a harrowing movie. Yes. And that that's a, a very, very big challenge to overcome when you're trying to get people to see a movie. Yes. And where I was going with that question is like as a distributor, I imagine you're you are experiencing that problem on like a 10x scale because you're trying to get people to distribute this movie. And so when you're describing it, 
you know, it's not it's not as like simple or easy, I guess, of a sell. Am I assuming the right thing? Yeah, for sure. So when you're choosing films to distribute, is that something that you're running into as as a challenge? Yeah, I mean, I think with a movie like that, uh, I mean, with any movie we acquire, it's a, it's a big puzzle and you kind of have to sort of reverse engineer how you can make sense of it. And so as you look at the landscape that exists and you're thinking about like, what are the theaters we can take this out to? How well is it going to do there? When it goes on uh, digital platforms transactionally, like iTunes or Amazon Instant Video, like what can we expect to come out of that? Is there an SVOD sale? Who is it to and how much is it for? Like for us, it's we're putting all of these pieces together to essentially value a film, monetarily value a film. And that needs to make sense in order for us to get behind something, unless on the rare occasion we do go into something thinking like, you know what, it's very likely that we will lose money on this. But if we can mitigate that loss and feel like we did a good thing or get something else out of it, then that also can make sense. But like we're just one gatekeeper through this process. It's like if we if we get involved in a film, we then have to convince theaters to show it. We have to convince buyers at you know, Netflix or Amazon or Hulu or wherever to want to buy it. We have to convince consumers to go see it. There's so much more work to be done after we get involved in it. And there's a degree to which there's a bit of a leap of faith that other people will respond the way that you do, that you'll find that theater who says like, all right, I've been presented with these two films this week and this one's going to make more money, but I'm still going to book this one because I think it's important. You do you need some other goodwill to to support you through that process. And I think we had a lot of theaters, for example, that, you know, were willing to play on her shoulders, not because they thought that it was going to make money, but because they thought it was a necessary film to show. You're not going to get a lot of people who do that, but you you need some semblance of that and and then there's also like weird unknown factors that you can never really anticipate. Like when the film hit transactional platforms, for example, generally speaking, iTunes makes up the lion's share of transactional revenue. They just have a larger base of people. What do you mean by transactional like, uh, platforms? Like VOD, renting stuff or okay. buying stuff like in a transactional nature. So okay. not, not a subscription platform like a Netflix. Mm-hmm. It's like there has to be an individual transaction on that particular film. And that usually hits in an earlier window. So it'll go up on Amazon to rent before it goes up on Prime, if it's going up on Prime at all. And generally speaking, iTunes is the lion's share of that revenue. And so Amazon actually outperformed iTunes significantly on this film. And On, th- on her shoulders. On her shoulders, mm-hmm. yeah. I think a reason for that is probably because of what the subject matter is and who might be engaging with it. And so you have... Amazon that is, they're a bookseller, they're a, and Nadia has also written a book. Like there's people who are going to Amazon who are a different demographic of people. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you're on iTunes, you're, you're probably on iTunes like to rent or buy a movie. Mm -hmm. And most people who just want to rent or buy a movie aren't really thinking about seeing a movie like that. Yeah. Whereas if you're going to buy a philosophy book, maybe you're going to be more open to it. And so, um, so we did actually see with a with a film like that where there's other areas where you can kind of make connections, you know, films can like buck trends and and in that case that's what happened there. I don't I don't know if that was relevant to anything. Mm-hmm. No, about. no, it was interesting. 
does your distribution strategy change at all? Like on her shoulders, just using keep going with this example is on the Oscar shortlist. That's going to put a lot more attention onto that film. Does that change your relationship with your partners like Amazon or iTunes? It basically becomes a renewed lobbying effort to try to get more attention on these films. Um, All of these places, there is a level of curation that exists. And you don't think of iTunes as a curator because they're not buying movies based on the quality of those movies or anything like that. It's like if you have an apparatus to get a movie on iTunes, like if you have a contract with them, you have whatever. Like they're not curatorial as far as what they'll take. We can put anything we want on iTunes. Mm-hmm. It's like a platform, I guess. Yeah. yeah. It's just a store, basically. Yeah. Where they do get curatorial and where it's exceptionally meaningful is when you go to iTunes, whether you're on your computer or on your TV or whatever, you're presented with the storefront and you're looking at you know, 20, 30 films at a time tiled on this storefront. You've got a banner rotating at the top showing you five or six things that they've pulled out. All of that stuff is curated. And so if you have a movie that is going up on iTunes that is receiving no support, it'll still go up, but you'll have to search for it. Whereas things that are getting support, they're going to be pasted in front of your face. And those movies are going to perform so much better because people are inherently lazy and they're not going to, unless you're going there for a purpose, you're going to browse through what's in front of you and you're going to pick something. Yeah. And so when something like, you know, if an Oscar nomination were to happen, for example, the onus gets put on us to then go back to iTunes and to go back to Amazon and go back to all these places and say, there's a reason to put this back in front of people's faces. Mm-hmm. Once a film is out there, it's not like, oh, our work is done. We're like constantly trying to get more attention on even movies that are 10, 12 years old. That's another thing to try it back to. The first thing we started talking about why like self-distributing something, can be it's like that can be hard because we're 10 years in on a movie and we're still like working on it. Yeah. And we have the ability to do that because it's still on these platforms and because we're talking to these platforms. Like when Spectrum or optimum or whatever these cable platforms are one of them is like we're setting up our stunts for the month of june like we get an email notifying us that that is happening or you know this holiday is coming up and this film should be highlighted and so you know as as somebody who self-distributes the film i don't know that you'd ever have an opportunity to do that like would the film even exist on cable vod in the first place Mm -hmm. yeah and and you have these ongoing conversations and relationships with these partners too which i'm sure helps you know it's like oh another email from dan you know yeah i don't know if that helps or not that's that might that might do the opposite (laughs) but you know this guy (laughs) this guy again (laughs) this has been such an interesting conversation thank you so much dan sure thanks so much for listening Rough Cut is hosted and produced by me, Jenny Butler. Our theme music is by Zach Wright. Our design is by Adam Glucksman. The podcast is co-produced by Sky Dillard Robbins, who's the founder and executive director of the Video Consortium. And all of our guests and the people who made this podcast happen are in the Video Consortium. And for the filmmakers who are listening, we'd love for you to check us out and maybe join. So the Video Consortium is a creative community of the world's top nonfiction filmmakers and video journalists. We're all based throughout the world, but we have chapters in New York, L.A., San Francisco, Washington, D.C., Paris, and a bunch more coming soon. 
You can visit us at videoconsortium.com and find us on all of the social things. And if you're in one of our chapter cities and want to attend an upcoming monthly gathering, which are secret parties slash screenings of sorts, just shoot us an email, info at videoconsortium.com. And if you want to learn more about Rough Cut, you can visit roughcutpodcast.com and maybe shoot us a note. Thanks so much for listening. See you next time.